Well, amen. Let me say what a privilege and a joy it is to be here. The service last night, now the second service this morning, and thrilled my family could join us. Now, I just got to be real honest with you. I've, I've got to go home this afternoon. I don't have the energy to stay here and worship with y'all. I mean, Teddy gets me so fired up, and I just sing so hard, and uh, I'm almost hoarse by the time it's time to get up to preach. And I really resent the fact that I can't dance like he does. <clears throat> I'm often asked, you know, and especially in the South, uh, in, in being a Baptist, the question's asked, can Baptists dance? And the obvious answer, some can, some can't. But uh, wonderful music, what Christ-honoring music. What, what a privilege it is to be here with Vance and his family and team and you dear people after uh, all these years. We talk about you, pray for you. I watched our webcast from Woodstock this morning and they were so much in the service about where I was. You always have to kind of uh, do a, uh, a defining moment when you say your pastor is in Vegas this weekend. It, out our way, it's always kind of like doing what? And we've got a large debt we're trying to liquidate. But anyway, um, came out to make a little investment. But no, it's, uh, I heard him say, I know what you're thinking. And everybody looks, what's he doing in Vegas? So uh, we, we just rejoice in what God has done out here and to allow us to be a small part of, uh, of his activity and what he's doing. So we have just been thrilled, um, just had such a, a, a good time with you. So Vance, thank you so much for in, inviting me to come and, and just being a part of this special weekend. And I don't know of anywhere in the whole world I'd rather be than with missionaries and seeing what God's doing in their life. And the truth is, God really wants all of us on mission with him. And it's sort of the challenge that I'm going to bring. It'll be interesting to see how it comes out this hour because I just keep trying to get out of my heart what God has placed there in a different way. But one of the things I do as a Christian is I'm very devotional. I love, I love to read. In the mornings, I get up and to give the first 45-minute minimum, minimum of an hour to just, just read. I, I every year end up reading about five different devotions, and, and they just speak into my life. And this morning when I was reading, it, it spoke so clearly to, um, to what I want to share this morning. I, I just want to pray that God would move in our hearts and get us out of the comfort zones, that we'd begin to believe again that God wants to do wonders among us, even in greater ways. That he wants to take us somewhere that he even says in scripture, it's a place that you've never been before. It's unknown territory. You can't find it on your GPS. We're going to talk about why you don't want to go there. What's so uncomfortable about it. But I was reading this morning, um, L.B. Kalman, this dear lady, her husband was a contemporary to um, Oswald Chambers. And when I connected the dots, I thought this will be a good read. And I read this this morning. Uh, when this service is over, we'll grab a light lunch, head for the airport, and head back home to speak across the southeast this week. He said, one of the first rules of aerodynamics is that flying into the wind quickly increases altitude. The wings of the airplane create more lift by flying against the wind. How was this lesson learned? It was learned by watching birds fly. If a bird is simply flying for pleasure, it flies with the wind. But if it senses danger, it turns into the wind to gain altitude and flies up toward the sun. 
I feel like too many Christians are just flying in sort of a leisure mode, a comfort zone. And I believe God wants us to fly against the tide and the adversity of this culture in order to make a difference uh, for the kingdom of God. I I no longer read that that I picked up one that I've not been able to put down. I've been reading Oswald Chambers for well over 25 years. It's the number one best-selling devotional book in the entire world. One of the best-selling books outside of the copy of God's Word. And listen how it just spoke. This is what today's devotions, dated the 21st, it says, If love is always discreet, always wise, always sensible and calculating, never carried beyond itself, it's not love at all. It may be affection. It may be warmth of feeling. It, it has not the true nature of love in it. And then it said this, have I ever been carried away to do something for God? Not because it's my duty, not because it was useful, not because there was anything in it all at all beyond the fact that I love him, that I can bring things which are of value to him. And I didn't make, read this statement in the other service, but I was talking about that it's the ordinary things that you do. And you'll see it in the text if I get to it this morning, get that far in the text, that it's not the big battles that you win that help you to really know victory in life. It's responding in the little things. It's not the Jerichos. It's the AIs, the small places where you don't even feel like you need an army to help you to defeat it. You gotta be careful in the little things and don't let the um, small foxes Spoil the vine. So listen to this statement. Not divine, colossal things, which could be recorded as marvelous, but ordinary, simple human things, which will give evidence to God that I'm abandoned to him. And then listen to this question. Have I ever produced in the heart of the Lord Jesus what Mary of Bethany produced? You ever given anything that, and normally when you give it, you may see the same response that Mary heard, and that is, there's always a Judas in the crowd that says, you should have taken that precious perfume instead of pouring it on the feet of Jesus. You could have sold it and given it to the poor. But what you ought to do when you read a statement like that is read the whole story. And you'll find out that Judas was not interested in selling that so he could help the poor. He had been stealing from the treasury that they had been accumulating for the poor to begin with. And so I, I really believe God wants to sort of move us to a new level. I mean, here I am in one of the most admired churches. We, we've started now, Vance, been a part of financially sending pastors, sending some type of help with 81 Southern Baptist churches in the last 23 years. I mean, God, we've just had three in the last few years that God's helped me be a part of. I put my son-in-law in a church less than four years ago running 17 people. And they are now averaging 625 on the weekends. We had one that we, we started, our first church was called Paulding Baptist Church in a burned out motorcycle shop in Dallas, Georgia. Uh, we started over there with just a, a couple of families. It grew and they went through transition. It's 22 years old now, uh, or 22 years later. And they called me one day and said, things that, since y'all cut the umbilical cord, things have not gone so well. We need your counsel again. They were down to 35 people. We went and shut it down. We appointed their pastor. And in less than two years, they're averaging over 750 every weekend. I mean, God's just doing some neat things out there. But he wants to use this. He wants to make a difference. Did you know that when we became involved in placing dollars and people in this ministry, you've heard this story probably, but we brought Vance and Christy and the family 
to Woodstock for six months. Just put him in my staff, uh, gave him the same salary he was making the church where he was serving, allowed him to bring Mike and family and Jeff and family in. I think you all stayed with us about three months. We paid all the salaries. Somebody says, man, what a rich church. No, no, you need to hear me. What a begging church. Uh, Jerry Falwell said that when he died, he wanted them to put on his epitaph, on his tombstone, and the beggar died. And the truth is, since he's passed on now, and I've served there on that Liberty Board so long, I think I'm going to pick that same one. No, I'm constantly bringing to our people new opportunities to try to touch the nations for the glory of God. And I'm not intimidated by people saying all he talks about is money. Because I don't. I talk about the kingdom of God and it takes the resources that God gave us because my Bible says God gave you the power to get wealth. And I believe he wants us to take it and invest in the kingdom of God. So we want to advance the kingdom of God. It's best been said in leadership that if you want to succeed in life, spend your life helping others succeed. And so that's what we desire to do. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about living fearlessly. And I want to remind you that faith is demanded. God never placed faith in your life to paralyze you. Most of the things that God has called me to do, I had to deal with with the the fear in my life and, and not wait for it to subside, not pray and say, oh God, if you're in this, just give me peace. Well, sometimes peace is just the fact that I'm with you and I will never leave you. And so move on out there. Uh, My father checked out on my mom when I was seven years old, left her with six kids, and we ended up moving into a government project. Stayed in and out of trouble as a teenage kid, dropped out of school when I was 16, managed a pool hall and became a young hustler for four years in my life before a carpenter by the name of N.W. Pridgen, I love to tell this, uh, introduced me to another carpenter from Nazareth that changed my life. And then I began to sense that God had a purpose and direction for me that God could use me, but they were all kinds of obstacles that God wanted to use those obstacles for opportunities. For instance, I began to sense in my life that God was calling me to preach. Let me me just do this. I mean, here I am going a different direction again. I, I remember I'd gotten married when I was 18. My wife had been 17, 17 days. And, uh, she was an honor roll student and every now and then I'd want her to stay home. So I would take her out of school and I'd have to write her a note to be excused. That was cool. And some of you parents right now are saying, I wish you'd not share that story. I've got a teenage daughter here that thinks she's ready to get married. Well, I'm not through with the story. Would you let me tell the story? That was back then, sort of like in Bible days. That age today would be equivalent to about 29 or 30. All right, you, you got it there. So, so give, give me a break here. So I, I used to sort of, you know, fill out the call of God. I'm sensing God wants me to do something in ministry. And by the way, when God calls you to do something, I'm of the deep conviction that it doesn't come with options. I I believe that the will of God is just the will of God. I believe that there's something God wants you to do, and and it brings you to the point where you put your yes on the table, and then God begins to make it clear for you, and then you begin to realize in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 and following that you're not just made by God, you're made for God. And and I'm telling you, if God doesn't know what's best for me, since he already inhabits my tomorrow, I've got an improper view of the God of the Bible. And so I've really deified myself to the point that I can tell him what's best for me. Sometimes we take a a blank sheet of paper out and we pray prayers like this. Lord, thank you that you're helping me to finish my education where my favorite sports team resides. Thank you for this cute 
person you've allowed me to meet. And I want to ask you right now, let me marry him. Lord, you know I put in that application for that job. And so what, what we're, listen to me, we're telling everything to the God who made us and knows what's best for us, that we know what's best for us. And we need him to acquire it for us. And then we settle it once and for all. And we make our prayer, here it is, in Jesus' name. So what we do, we sign his name to the bottom of our request, and then we're ticked off if life don't turn out the way we thought he should have given it to us. I want to recommend you do something. Tear that up. Get you a blank sheet of paper. Begin to put your trust in the God of the Bible. And when you do that, leave the sheet blank, sign your name at the bottom, and say, you're God and God alone you fill in the blank. And I'm just going to make a statement. And I'm down to journey. I'm 57 years old. I've been doing this for 34 years. There's nothing in the whole world I'd rather do than what I'm doing. The baby that is, is, Toby Mac says it's what gets me up in the morning and what puts me to bed at night. There, there, it puts a spring in your step even on Monday morning when you get up and you feel like you're living on purpose for God and you're not living uh, begrudgingly thinking, oh God, back to that same old grind, the same old job again. Uh, not being able to hardly wait till one day you can quit doing what you've been doing. And it may very well be because you got what you wanted, but never submitted yourself to find out what he had for you. But I'm going to make a statement. I'm down the journey far enough to know this. What God has for you is so much better than what you have for you. And if not, don't you ever sing anything about how good he is again or how great he is again because our singing is falling on deaf ears. No wonder the Bible says that he is in heaven and he laughs oftentimes at us. And maybe it's because of how we give him credit and never look to him. Well, Israel, they've been wandering 40 years in the wilderness. And I want to just be honest. I'm one of those Christians that believe every Christian has somewhat of a wilderness experience. I believe that God is preparing us for what God has prepared for us. God does not call the equipped. God calls the equipped. That's why when God calls you to do something, you don't feel you can do it. So what I did, I bounced it off my wife. Here we are, and I'm thinking, I was very, back in those days, I was very timid and shy, a real introvert. And I remember saying to Janet, hey, uh, you know, praying lately and everything, I begin to sense that uh, God may be calling me to preach. Her response, <laughs> you're kidding you, you, you can't talk three minutes publicly. And if you did, you started crying. You a preacher. Wow. That's cool. What, what else? You know, I mean, you know, it was just, it, and I would just kind of came back in and say, well, she's probably right. And, and we couldn't explain it, but God began to speak to us. You know what we used to do? We used to sit in a service and, and I was trying to live as close and clean as I possibly knew how as a new, newer believer, just a year or so in my journey. And we would be during an invitation that would like to be extended this morning that Vance will give to you all. We would find ourselves in the altar just saying, God, is there something in our life you're displeased with? What are you trying to tell us? And, and I think it was part of God's call. God was calling me to do something for him. And, and then, so finally we got to the point to say, you know what? We, we were going to buy this new house. We were going to do this. And then one day my wife said, you know, God's getting my attention too, Johnny, and, and I don't want that house we went and looked at the other day. I want us to sell the one we've got, and I want us to do the will of God for our life. And we didn't know what, what that was. I didn't know if I was going to be a missionary, student pastor. Uh, I, I didn't know if I was going to be a pastor. I, I was pretty confident it had nothing to do with music. So um, 
we just made, made ourselves available and God really just began to fill in the blanks for our life. And, and then guess what happened? Before we could kind of, you know, we wanted to make it public. My brother, two years older than me, he and his wife Carol sitting in the service, God dealing with us. We're talking about let's go forward and share with Pastor Gibson that we'd like the church to pray for us. We feel like God's calling us full-time Christian service. My brother responded. I'm sitting there thinking, wonder what he's doing. And then the pastor says, well, we're thrilled this morning to present Norman and Carol Hunt. And God's calling him to preach. I got ticked off. That's a Greek word. I begin to just think, he's not, God's, God's calling me. He's not calling him. And all these things were in my way. See, I'd, I'd allowed these things to cause a fear factor. You know what I begin to think now? It was like the enemy said to me, yeah, why don't you go ahead and respond? And then the word will just get out. Well, Norman Hunt surrendered to preach and his, his little brother followed suit. And, and, and so it was intimidating. And so I struggled and stayed back for a long time instead of letting God have his way in my life. Listen, there's always some type of obstacle. You've always got some type of reason from obeying the will of God. Now, I'm getting ready to read somewhat of a familiar story, but here's what you need to know. Historians tell us when they were in Kadesh Barnea, after God released the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, which is a picture of the world where God brings you out of your lostness, that when they, if they had followed God's directives, they could have been in the land of promise in seven to eight days. Instead, it took 40 years. Now, I, I just want to pose a question. I would like to be sensitive enough to Jesus that it would not take years for God to get me where I could be in a much shorter period of time. I have heard too many men and women say this. I wish to God I had known then what I know now. Really? Well, Adrian Rogers, my mentor, used to say this. God gives light. When you obey light, God gives you more light. When you deny light, God ceases to sin. Why should God show you something else from chapter 2 when you've not even obeyed chapter 1? We've got to get back to the basics and begin to obey God. And so Joshua got him a young congregation. You know why he's got a young congregation? God killed off the congregation he had. Read your Bible, the book of Hebrews. Why, why did they die in the wilderness? What was the purpose? Hebrews teaches because of unbelief. So now he's leading some, some believe between one and two million in his congregation, all under the age of 40 because all the others have died. Joshua and Caleb saw something over in Hebron in the promised land that they could never get out of their heart and mind. And they wanted to see that become a reality. So he's waited all these years, only heaven knows how many nights, under the stars out in the wilderness, that maybe Joshua or Caleb would be asked by that younger generation, what was it like when you were there? And 40 years has passed. You're, you're talking Joshua now is 80 years old. Soon Caleb will tell us in chapter 14 that he's moved into the, the, the years of 85. And he says this, he says, I am, I'm as strong today <laughs> as when God called me. I, lo I love that passage. Uh, if I live to be 85, I hope I've got enough passion to continue to uh, preach even in those days. So living fearlessly, faith is demanded. Stand, stand with me for just a moment, the honor of the reading of God's word. And then let me just make a few observations of this text and, uh, and be done. It's not in Corinthians, is it? It's Joshua. The Bible says, then Joshua rose early in the morning, 
And listen to these words. You'll see them over and over again. You'll see the words set out and the words cross over. And somewhere or another, it has to be that defining moment, that red letter day where you set out. And then maybe you'll be able to say, I'm grateful that I obeyed God back there and it made a difference in my life and I crossed over. And so the Bible said, he set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel, they lodged there three days before crossing over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God, which would be in typology, Jesus, and you see the the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you should set out from your place and go after it. And that's what we need to do. We need to go after it. You've heard so many times from your pastor, God allowed him to come to Las Vegas find out what he was up to, and join him in his activity. But son, you had to go after it. You couldn't do it in Alabama or Tennessee. You had to get on out here and go after it. Yet the Bible says there shall be a space between you, and that is the Ark of the Covenant, 2,000 cubits, that's 3,000 feet, a little over a half mile, by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go. And here's great words. You have not passed this way before. God wants to lead you to unpredictable Unchartered, unfamiliar territory causes a little bit of um, heartburn. But God says, I want, I want to get you out there. Joshua said to the people, and here's what you got to do if you want to go. Sanctify yourself. Let's get right. There's some things you need to embrace, and there's some things you're going to have to let go. For tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua spoke to the priests, got the leadership together, take up the Ark of the Covenant, cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now, I'm getting ready to read verse number seven. And this morning in the other service, I called Christie's attention, not only to this passage, but also chapter two and verse 14. You don't know this. He won't say it, but I'm going to say it. God has raised your pastor up to be one of our leading mission speakers in our nation. At his young age, he really has. Uh, I was with Dr. Ronnie Floyd the other night. And Ronnie said, uh, you're going to be with Vance Pittman. Tell him in that church that we've had no one at Springdale, Arkansas, one of the great churches in the nation, that have meant more to us in challenging us in missions than Vance Pittman. So here, here's why, how that happened. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And so Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here, hear the words of the Lord your God, and here's the key thought. And Joshua said, By this... You shall know that the living God is among you. Father, in the name of Jesus, speak, Lord, speak. For Christ's sake, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. The people that Joshua was leading had only known wilderness living, they were born in the wilderness. They had lived in the wilderness all of their life. They didn't know Egypt, and they didn't know Canaan. So their life was very predictable and very familiar. And and I need to make a statement, and I I love to teach this. The wilderness was not all bad. There were some incredible lessons, incredible truths to learn in the wilderness. Did you know that in the wilderness, the Bible says that God gave them clothes and shoes that didn't wear out. I wish to God I could find my wife a pair of them. But here, 40 years 
in the wilderness. The Bible teaches that every morning and on Friday before the Sabbath, God would send double portion. He would feed them manna, Hebrew translation, light bread. And then they got tired of just bread and they began to cry out and said, God, we'd like some meat. And God literally caused quail to light in the camp where they could pick them up, pluck them and roast them. The Bible says there was a rock that followed them in the wilderness. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock was Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? The rock was Jesus. Jesus was in the wilderness. Come on, let's, let's be honest. If Jesus is there, it can't be all bad. So what we're doing, we're not trying to, to convince someone that they need to leave a life that nobody wants. They could, they could tell you it's not just pre- predictable and familiar, but there's some things we really like about wilderness living. But the, the spiritual truth that God's trying to say is, I've got so much more for you. I want to use you in so much greater ways. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great one-liners is this. He said the average Christian, listen to this, has misjudged their capacity for God. Eddie Carswell wrote one song and it was entitled, He's More God Than I Can Imagine. And so when you you begin to realize that you're serving a God of that quality, you really begin to say, maybe we should set out and cross over. It's been said that God rarely requires what is easily released. Man, it's just hard to give up some things. We don't want to give up the wilderness. I mean, we've complained some about the manna, but boy, compared to others, we, we've got it made. Thank God for the quail. And man, these, these clothes are incredible. And thank God Jesus, he's here with us. The word crossover is used in Exodus 14, 13. The Hebrew word is journey. It means going forward. So when we talk about setting out and crossing over, God taking you out of your comfort zone, taking you to a new level where one day you'd be able to say, hey, there was this red letter day at our church. There was this defining moment during our our hope for the world and God got hold of my heart. And I can't explain this, but I'm telling you, God moved me down the road spiritually light years and my life is just determinedly making a, a significant difference more so than ever. The word that is used there for crossover speaks of a decisive nature being emphasized of a moment in history where these people, the Hebrew people, distinguishes them in what they're about to experience from anything and everything that had ever gone before them. When someone would say, hey, uh, you're still up there at Hope Baptist Church, yeah, how are things going? Instead of just saying, oh, I'm about the same, you'd have to say, man, thanks for asking. I mean, I had this encounter with God during our conference, and God did something in my life, and I made some decisions, and I surrendered and put my yes on the table and realized I'm not in control, that he is, and God just has worked in a phenomenal way. The word connotes something with tremendous, epic significance. We oftentimes say this. Hey, you've had nine wonderful years as a fellowship, but the, yet, the best is yet to come. Is that just something we say or is it something we really believe? When we read something in the Bible, does it really speak to us or do we just underline it? I have a file in my office. Every sermon I've ever preached in my life, I have a copy of it. I went back not long ago to the first sermon I ever preached. I entitled it, God Wants to Do for You, what he did for the Israelites. It was on 13 pages. It took me five minutes to deliver it. 
scared to death. The text was Deuteronomy 6.23, and God brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us a land which he swore to our fathers. See, when God saved you, God saved you with a real purpose in mind. There's something God wants to do through you. See, sometimes in our local church, we don't really understand body life. And if things don't happen, we criticize a pastor, staff, leaders, and say, they ought to be doing this when the truth is, you may have been God's touch in that particular area of ministry. You're the one that God burdened. See, I don't allow anyone to transfer God's call and God's burden from their heart to mine. When somebody comes up and says, I think our prayer ministry uh, needs to go to a new level. I think, man, listen, do me a favor write out what it's going to look like, and let's pray through it. I can hardly wait to see how God's going to use you to do it. So what they they really meant is they want me to take it, but that's what's wrong with the church. You have Christ in you. It's a personal, intimate relationship with Almighty God, and he doesn't just pass it on to the other person. The pastor at Moody Bible Church, making reference to this story, said this. Don't miss this. If Egypt represents the world... And the long excursion in the desert represents the discipline every one of us experience. Then the Jordan River represents that full surrender that must precede the lifelong task of knowing God. Each of us comes to our own Jordan at some point in our life. Wouldn't wouldn't that be neat? This would be good, wouldn't it? When you went to the office tomorrow and somebody said, well, hey, how was church yesterday? Hey, I had a Jordan River experience. Really? And you know, I know what they did. They say, what in the world's that? And here's what you need to know about the Jordan River. If I'd have read verse number 15 to you, it is during harvest time. Now, now what, do you, what do you mean by that, Pastor? It's March or April. The snow caps of Mount Hermon are starting to melt, and it's making its way down into the dry riverbeds of the desert, the Negev. And then Jerusalem is in its rainy season, and the rain, no one goes down to Jerusalem. Anytime you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem because it sets up on the hill. And now the water's making its way down. It makes what the Greeks call wadis, which are just uh, floods of waters through the desert. And, and it's just remarkable what's happening. And I'm grateful that the Southern Baptist Convention was not in charge of this move to cross the Jordan because had they been, I can hear some president now saying, listen, the water is high. It's, it's harvest time. It would have been the widest point to, to cross. But, but why is it that God always gives us rivers of impossibilities? Because he wants to show us that it's not us, it's him. We want to be able to say, God is so much more. We we need to be able to say, he could have done it and I could have somewhat have understood it and explained it here, but he did it in such a way, it's almost like with Elijah, instead of just saying, call down the fire from heaven, he says, before you call the fire, go get barrels of water and soak the thing. It's always like he, he just, he's looking, listen to this, this is a good word. He's looking for some child of God that will take him at his word and give him an opportunity to show himself great on your behalf. I went to Woodstock. I've been there now. I'm in my 24th year. Uh, we were a struggling church. They had fired the pastor and the ministry of music before we were running 250. I left the church running 750 that had led the state of North Carolina baptisms three years in a row. I was in a good place, and yet God sovereignly called me. I mean, just 
get out, go over there. And I'm thinking, okay. And we, we went to that church for one reason, not because Atlanta Northwest was a great place to be. I'd never been to Atlanta in my life. I went there out of obedience to God. God called me there. And that's the reason to be there. Didn't know what they were going to pay me. I pastored four churches, hadn't known what they were going to pay me until I got there on any of them because the salary never mattered. What mattered most of all is the will of God. We spend too much time worrying about what don't matter and we miss what matters. And what we've done, God's clarified his will to us and we've complicated it with all our questions and fill in the blanks that we need God to jump through the hoops before we're going to obey him. That's a good place to say amen. But anyway, I, um, I, I went there and, and I remember we were, on, we were on three acres of land. We had grown in a, in a two-year period from 250 to 1,300 in attendance. We had 138 parking places. We had to park all day. Nobody liked this because the church had a bad reputation. One of the things God's done, God has, has worked in our church, and he's given us a 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 experience in that now we have a good name. See, every church has the good news if it's a biblical church, but there's churches with the good news that don't have a good name. God gave us a good name. I used to go over to Morgan's Hardware and say, Mr. Hardware, Mr. Hardware, <laughs> Mr. Morgan, you, you don't have, uh, you're not open on Sunday. Can we park over here? No. Until God gave us a good name, then, then he came to me and said, do y'all still want to park over here? So here, we were, so I go before the people and I say, uh, I've been praying and fasting. And by the way, if you get to praying and fasting, you will flat get in trouble with the average person in your church because you're on different wavelengths. And, and here's what I said, Lord, what do you want us to do? We have a chance to buy a 19 acre stretch of land on a major highway for a million dollars. But Lord, we only took in $280,000 in 52 weeks last year. And they told me if I'm gonna buy this land, I need the money in 30 days. And if I don't have the money in 30 days, they're selling it to Coca-Cola. And just in case you didn't know, they had the money. But anyway, so the bottom, <laughs> bottom line is uh, the committee met. And here's what the committee said. They said, hey, uh, we're debt-free. We can go down to the bank and have the money. Well, there's only one thing wrong. I'd been praying and fasting, and God said, hey, John, what you really need is for them to see me glorified in this. Plan A, believe me for the money. No option. So, so all, the, all these leaders that know far more about finances than to, to, to me came to me and said, oh, we've got to go and sign the note. We've got the land. What are you doing? I said, God's going to show himself strong. I, I would go into a little restaurant because it's a small little town there at Woodstock, and I'd go in this little restaurant downtown to eat, and the, the businessmen were over there making fun of me. And one man said, hey, here you believe in God in 30 days for a million dollars in a church that only gave about 280 in 52 weeks last year. He said, you flat got him out on the limb, haven't you? And it intimidated me, and I didn't know how to respond. So I went and called John Morgan, because he's raised a lot of money down at Houston. I said, John, here's what they're saying about me. He said, John, that was a perfect setup. You said that God's got you out on a limb. Don't you know where the fruit is? Go get the fruit and take it back to him. So I went in the next day, and I just wanted him to say it again so I could tell him that's where the fruit is. But the bottom line is, at the end of 30 days, the offering was there. I wish I could tell some of the stories of what happened in one of the offerings. But the bottom line is, God had given us a million dollars. And as a result, God was glorified. And he showed that he will bankrupt heaven if he had to, but he doesn't have to. That he'll supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's either saying it's true, or he's a lunatic and a liar. And if he's Lord, God help the church cross over. Let's go to the other side. And believe him for our best days. And we've not looked back. We've not looked back in all the story. So here it is. It's a picture of, and my time's up. It's a picture of divine intervention. Hey, hey, would you answer a question for me? Let's just make it as personal and practical as we can. 
Is God, is God orchestrating Johnny Hunt to go to Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary on a particular morning that Christy would be playing the piano and her husband would be leading the music? And, and, and just sovereignly placed in my heart. And didn't just place it in my heart, he placed it in the heart of the president of the seminary. I don't know if you ever connect those dots, but he and I went to some little barbecue place for lunch and he said, I don't want to infringe upon our relationship because we don't know each other that well back in those days. But he said, I feel like God spoke to me and that Vance is your man. And I thought, I felt the exact same way. And then, so here's what we have. God intervened. Would you look around the room? And it's been like this. Vance said we had one of the better attendances last night. This room was full the last hour. He warned me that this would be the smaller crowd. Have you looked around, boss man? I'll take this small crowd. Anyway, this place is full. So here we've had three services this week and this place is full. And I'm telling you, I'm about to have me a blooming spell. You know why you're here this morning? Because a holy God got a man to set out from where he was. He talked him into crossing over. And this is nothing short of divine intervention. This is a God thing. Some of your lives have been changed. You were on your way to hell. You'd be in hell this morning if somebody had not. I mean, it's it. A lady came last night and said, I was Jewish, and this girl was my friend, and she got saved, and she brought Jesus to me. When did it start when somebody, oh, when, I wish I had whatever you've got in you right now so I could do a little jig up here right now. I feel like dancing. And God is no respecter of person. And let me tell you where the Christian, this is good. Let me tell you where the Christian life gets boring. The Christian life gets boring when you think God has special people. He doesn't doesn't have special people. He's got a special son. And that son comes to reign and rule in your heart. And God does special things for you and with you and in you and through you for the glory of God. So it's not about Vance. It's not about Woodstock. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he works in your life, I preached three different sermons. <laughs> and uh, practice makes perfect. I like that one better than the others. <laughs> Bottom line, if you, you could only begin to believe that God could use you to make a significant difference, I refuse. Well, listen to me. I wrote a whole series of sermons on this statement. I refuse to leave Woodstock the way I found it. It's going to happen. God lives in me. He's on mission to bring that city to himself. I refuse to be satisfied. Somebody says, we're getting so big. Someone asked me to do this, and I'll close with this. Got to close somewhere. Someone asked me to do this. Someone said, Woodstock's so big, I'd never go to a church that big. By the way, isn't that amazing? Some people said he wouldn't go to a big church. You ever heard a woman say she wouldn't go to a big mall? (laughs) Who's gone to the airport lately and said, we don't like the 757. Do you have a crop duster you can fly me to Atlanta on? (laughs) The bigger that sucker is. 
better for me. The only thing people criticize that are big in this country is the church of the Lord Jesus. And last time I checked, it's the only institution God placed here to keep people out of hell, to preach a gospel where they could, they could come to worship God and to know him. And, and what, a, what a difference, what a difference it makes. So I, I refuse to leave where I serve the way I found it. I, I want to make a, a difference. Here you are in the fastest growing city of America. And it may have changed a little bit with the uh, economic downturn, but it's still, I know, I, know, I know it's in the top 10 because I've been reading a little bit about it. Y'all have an awesome opportunity. You've started six or seven churches. Brother here on the front row in one of the churches. I know most of the guys that are serving your places. And there's so much more to do. But here's what we did. We went in a five-mile radius of our church. Five miles. We found 117,000 people living in 37,000 homes. We made a commitment. And over a few months, God is my witness, the knuckles of the people of First Baptist Church Woodstock knocked on all 37 thousand doors, all of them. I had a plan of what we were going to do in three different levels. If next Sunday morning, God were to send revival, let me tell you the difference in revival and evangelism. Revival is when God awakes something in a person's conscience that you can't even touch. It is divine where they would get up and would say, honey, we need to go to church where they've never had a desire. God gives them some type of thirst. Uh, you see it in John 7, 37 through 39. There's a picture of the call of salvation. Come, thirsty, drink. God makes a person thirsty, and when he does, he's the only one that can satisfy the thirst. He creates a need that only he can satisfy. Oh, that's, that's the God that I serve. If they were to get up Sunday morning in a five-mile radius and say, let's all go to church, I went to every church in the community, every church, and got their seating capacity. And here's what we found out. We could only handle 10% of the people that live in a five-mile radius if they wanted to go to church this Sunday. When we planted your church here, Vance, here's what we were told. We need 85 more like it tomorrow to say that we're catching up. 85, that was then. Only God knows in nine years the numbers now may need that we... Uh, my prayer as the pre president of Southern Baptist Convention is that one day I would lead our denomination to say in three years, we're going to plant a thousand new churches in three years in New York City, 20 million people. And to get serious. I mean, are we serious? Or are we going to get to heaven and regret the waste of our life when we were supposed to be here on mission for the one we claim we're here to worship? I, I, I just want to challenge you to take it to a new level. Put, put your yes on the table. You don't have to understand what it is God's going to have for you. You just say, Lord, I don't know what it is, but I, I just signed my life over. Fill in the blanks and just see what God wants to do with you and see what he'll do in taking you to a new level. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for this sweet church. What an incredible experience. I, I literally am glorying in the, the reality of your presence in this place. I just sense a divine touch. And I just pray that man, woman, boy, girl, once again, would move out of their fear, embrace God in faith and know that the waters of Jordan can be crossed. Help them to cross over. Help them to know their life can be significant. Speak mightily. Use fancies. He makes his appeal to see a greater level of commitment than ever before. And we, we so rejoiced when we heard the words of newsboys that not a word spoken can ever be defeated.
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a challenge. Listen, we are on a mission. When God birthed this church, He didn't bring us into existence so we could have a place to come and worship on the weekends where we could just come and get our spiritual pick-me-up for the week. God birthed our church because God was at work in this city and around the world for His glory. And God has invited us to get in on it. And when I say that, don't hear me say our part is simply to give some money so we can support people who are doing the mission. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God has called us as a family of faith with our gifts and abilities that every one of us has to put our yes on the table and be on mission together to reach the world with the gospel. And what we're challenging you to do this weekend is wherever you are on that journey, we're challenging you to take the next step. Take that next step of surrendering yourself to saying, God, however, Lord, here's the blank sheet of paper. However you want to use me. Lord, yes. And we're going to end our service a little bit differently. In the seat pocket in front of you or in your seat if you're on the front is a card that says hope for the world. I want everybody to grab this card. And we're going to ask you to pray about a fresh surrender to taking a next step on this thing of the mission. You hear us talk about it here at Hope all the time. But we're challenging you today. There are several options on here for you to begin to consider what the next step looks like for you. And in just a moment, we're going to stand. Our praise team is going to sing. And on both sides at the front up here are a blue table. Over on this side to my left and over here to my right. We're going to turn those tables into an old-fashioned altar this morning. All right? And here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to prayerfully make a fresh surrender of your life by selecting one or two or several of these options on this card. And while our team is singing, we're going to ask you to do something real quickly. Just slip over to one of these tables, lay this card down, and breathe a word of prayer to the Lord as you do it, and then move right back to your seat and we'll close our service, all right? But let me show you what this says. At the top it says, I'm going to take the next step by just praying consistently for Las Vegas, the West, and the world. In the folder that we've given you this morning in your seat, there's a prayer calendar where you can pray every month for God's activity through this church among the nations. The second thing is you can begin to get involved right here in Las Vegas. When God birthed our church, He had this city on His heart. It's about the city of Las Vegas and what God is doing here. So you can serve. It says there, I'll serve at least once a quarter in one of Hope's local outreach ministries. Now, do you realize what you're saying there? Here's all you're saying. God... I'll give you four days this year. That's all that's saying. Lord, four times this year, I'll serve. And what's going to happen if you get engaged, you'll begin to do more than that. But just a starting place to say, man, I'm going to get off the sidelines, and I'm going to say four times this year, I'll serve in a local outreach ministry, whether it's reaching the homeless, whether it's serving in our outreach, whatever it looks like. Then to begin to consider, possibly you're considering, a full, maybe God's stirring in your heart to put... A, a, a full-time call to some type of local vocational ministry. You can select that. Then it begins to talk about global opportunities. Look at the first one. Go on a short-term mission project nationally or internationally. Some of you have heard us talk about mission trips. We've taken uh, hundreds of people on mission trips, but I believe this year is going to be the greatest year of sending we've ever done as a church. 
We've got opportunities in the booklet that you have there. You're going to see dozens of mission trip opportunities this year. And maybe you're to that place to say, you know what? I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm not just going to pray for people. This year, I'm willing to say, I'll go. I'll consider going and being a part of one of these national or international mission projects. If your health or your situation don't allow you to do that, the second one says, I'll give so somebody else can go. I'll invest in somebody else being able to make that trip. And then the last one is maybe you're considering God calling you full-time to some type of cross-cultural work. Andy Milligan's right over here to my left. His, his family is leaving this year. They were working right here in Las Vegas. God's called them. They're moving to Zambia. Going to begin a nutritional feeding plan and program for, for malnourished children in southern Africa and all throughout the continent of Africa. They're going to be moving there. Last year, we commissioned Bill and Sandy Stevener, who left Las Vegas, now reside in Central America. Maybe God's calling you. And you're ready to put your yes on the table. So what I'm asking you to do is take this card, check the boxes that apply to you. And listen, only as you sense God leading you. And if you sense the Lord leading you, when we stand in just a moment to sing, I want you to quickly move to one of these tables, lay this card down as a surrender, and then go right back to your seat and we'll finish our service. All right? Now, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we have pastors over in both corners standing by these tables. You go to either one of them today and say, Hey, I don't know Jesus Christ, but I'd love to know Him as my Lord and Savior. And they'll show you from the Bible how you can be saved. I'm going to pray, then we're going to stand. Father, have your way in this service. Lord, as people move to these tables to make a fresh surrender this morning, God, I pray that they would seriously, God, let you speak into their lives about the mission. Lord, have your way in this time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.